So today we're going to take on a difficult subject, a hot topic, um, a subject that in this room we have people that have differing views about this subject. Um, some people don't, aren't sure what to think about this subject, uh, and I am going to tackle it uh, by grace, and I hope um, I can do this subject justice and be accurate to the scripture. The traditional view of marriage as being one man and one woman has been under fire in the U.S. since the 1970s. I'm sure we could trace it back even further than that. But there's been some huge things since the 1970s with the sexual revolution, which I lived through, did not do well, but I lived through it. And I'm still married, and I'm very grateful for that. Uh, with the sexual revolution came uh, spokespeople for same-sex marriage. Over decades, uh, public approval continued to grow in the U.S. And uh, by the 2010, over 50% of the U.S., according to uh, the Wall Street Journal and CNN, in the surveys they did, for the last five years, over 50% of people in the U.S. have been open to the whole concept of the same-sex marriage. On June 26, 2015, as everybody in the room probably knows, the U.S. Supreme Court made uh, headlines and made a historic decision granting same-sex couples the constitutional right to be married and to be recognized in their individual states. Then on July 9th, 2015, same-sex married couples were granted all legal rights and benefits of all married couples who are U.S. citizens, and that includes 1,138 benefits and protections uh, for married people. In other news, back on April 28th, 2015, in Oregon, a judge rule that Aaron and Melissa Klein, this is just sort of a side issue happening in our country at the same time, Aaron and Melissa Klein will have to pay $135,000 to a gay couple for emotional suffering because uh, the Klein Bakery, that's not the name of it, um, refused to make a wedding cake for this couple. And they refused on the grounds of their religious beliefs. More recently, that most of you are probably aware of, Kim Davis, a Kentucky uh, county clerk of Rowan County, refused to give marriage licenses to same-sex couples, and then she was put in jail for six days in September here, and she was just released recently. Now, to make Kim Davis's story even uh, more complicated... Kim Davis, and the news made uh, note of this uh, very quickly, Kim Davis had been married three times and divorced, and now is on her fourth marriage, and she had two children out of wedlock. And to even make this more complicated, four years ago she became a committed follower of Christ, which led to her religious beliefs and her views about her not giving out marriage license. So today, my desire is to give out a biblical perspective about marriage and uh, what uh, 
God designed for marriage and for sexuality as he's communicated to us in the scriptures. Today I'm going to lay a foundation and next week I'm going to deal with some of the harder questions. I'm not going to deal with all the questions today, so some of you might be disappointed, but we can't deal with the questions without seeing the foundation, what was originally intended. So um, I know this is a sensitive subject. I know there'll be people that may strongly disagree with me. That's okay. I hope you'll think this through. There'll be people who agree. I think uh, there are times where Christians have handled this extremely poorly. Christians have been judgmental. Uh, They've been indignant. They've been prideful. They've uh, assumed that they were somehow superior. And that's all to the shame of the cause of Christ. So let's begin, and on your outlines, we're going to deal with the very first point. Our perspective on marriage and sexuality is shaped by our worldview. It's shaped by our worldview. How do we, the worldview is how we see things, how we understand, what, how did we form our views, what is, it's, it's things like our family, uh, our friends, social media, our education, maybe our church experience has all been involved or not in church experience. All of these things have been involved in forming our worldview. A biblical worldview begins with God. We have to start there to understand the biblical perspective. Genesis 1.1 says this, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The Bible doesn't try to prove the existence of God. It begins with God. It assumes God. And we start there. Um, The big question is, and so the Bible, uh, in the beginning God created. The Bible says God's the creator of the world. He designed it. He made it. It's his idea. It's his plan. This is where I'm coming from. So, you know, these are, this is my assumption right here. So, uh, in the beginning, God, we begin with God. What is God like? And again, we're going to go to Scripture to see what God has said about himself. And uh, so I want, I'm going to look at several passages here that tell us about God. These are things that God chose to tell us about himself. Okay, so first passage is Isaiah 40. 28, and the scripture says, do you not know, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God. God is eternal. He has no beginning and no end. He's an eternal God. It's one thing he tells us. There are many passages that support this, by the way. The Lord is an everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. There again, he's the creator God. He designed the world, the universe. He will not grow weary or tired. He's powerful, and his understanding no one can fathom. His ways are not our ways. His ways are above our ways. They're higher than our ways. Um, He's beyond our understanding. Um, Another passage is Isaiah 43, verse 15. And uh, Isaiah the prophet, God speaking through the prophet says, I am the Lord, your holy one, Israel's creator, your king. There are three things there to describe God. One, he's holy. He's separate. He's a totally unique and separate 
and separated from evil and separated from sin. God is holy. It's one one descriptor here. Uh, He's the creator. We've seen that. The designer. And he's your king. And this whole idea of king goes throughout the Bible. And it's the idea of God being sovereign. And uh, he has a rule. And there is an eternal kingdom. And he is the king. Uh, Another passage is uh, Psalm 145, verse 3. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. Uh, His greatness no one can fathom. God's greatness is beyond our understanding. There's a lot more we could say. I'm just going to keep it to what the passage tells us. Psalm 145, verses 8 and 9. So we're going to look at many passages right here. And uh, they're all going to be up here. So you don't have to try to grab them in your scriptures. But Psalm 145, verses 8 and 9. The Lord is gracious and compassionate. This one's important. I'm glad he's gracious. I'm glad he's compassionate because he's been gracious and compassionate toward me. Um, He gives favor. He's loving. He's slow to anger and rich in love. And he wants his people to be like this too. There are many passages that support this in the New Testament. He's gracious. He wants us to be gracious. That means to cut people some slack. Um, He's compassionate. He wants us to be compassionate. He doesn't want us to be harsh or hateful. He's slow to anger. Sometimes Christians are quick to to anger and um, can become hateful. He's rich in love. The Lord is good to all. He has compassion for all. He has made all of creation. He has compassion for all people. This is my God. This is the God that has revealed himself in his word. Uh, Psalm 145, verse 13. Your kingdom is everlasting kingdom. Back to that concept of God being a king. Your dominion endures through all generations. His dominion is eternal. Dominion is about him being the Lord, him being the master. The Lord is trustworthy in all he promises. This is a great encouragement to me. He's trustworthy. We can count on him. He's made promises up. He's going to come through. He's faithful in all he does. He's trustworthy. He's faithful. He doesn't quit on his promises. Psalm 145, verses 17 and 18. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and faithful in all he does. The Lord is righteous. He's not unrighteous. He's not evil. He's faithful. The Lord is near to all who call on him. The Lord is near. He's right here. He's with you wherever you go. He's available. He's approachable. The Lord is near to all who call on him in truth. And he wants people to call on him, and he wants people to come to him. And he's designed uh, in truth, according to truth. He wants us to be truthful. He wants us to be honest. So, uh, this is what the God of the Bible is like. This is how he's revealed himself. Um, I'm not sure what you think of this. For some of you, it's really easy. And some of you, well, okay. This is how God has revealed himself. This, in, the, this, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This is God, okay? He's the one who created the heavens and the earth. Now, switching gears. A secular worldview begins with culture. A secular worldview begins with culture. Uh, back to our personal experience, our education, our family, 
our friends, social media, you know, movies, television. We end up with a worldview shaped and influenced by these things. A secular worldview is one that comes at these questions without uh, including God's perspective. So when we think about our culture, we would think about, okay, we live in the U.S., that's pretty influential. Of course, the whole world influences because of all the information available to us. We live in Wisconsin. We live here in Eau Claire or near here, most of us. And uh, so somehow this is all our environment here is an influence on what we think and the cultural perspective. Proverbs 14.12 says this, there is, there is a way that appears right appears to be right. And, and the old uh, NIV says there's a, there is a way that appears right to man. And, uh, but in the end, it leads to death. There is a way that, you know, when I think it through and I, and I process all of this, it seems right to me. And um, this is... Um, so this would be a, a, a perspective that does not include God. It, it's, it's a view uh, of the world as if God does not exist, or if he does, he really doesn't have any influence. So uh, people who have a secular mindset or a secular worldview make decisions and judgments about life um, that are their uh, best guesses, uh, sometimes based on popular opinion or sometimes based on a consensus and what seems most reasonable or scientific without uh, bringing God's perspective. Some cultural values include some, not all. Statements like be true to yourself comes uh, from our culture. Um, Seems like a good value to know yourself Don't be who you are not. Don't be hypocritical. Those seem like good things. But uh, what if to be true to myself, I feel like taking a gun into a school and begin shooting. If you take some of these ideas logically through, they they are not universal. They do not last. They are not principles always to live by. Another uh, concept, tolerance is viewed as a virtue. Tolerance can be good. It's sometimes about being patient. It's sometimes about being uh, slow to anger and slow to speak in situations. Um, Tolerance can be good, but should I be tolerant about somebody who breaks into my home and wants to harm my wife or set my house on fire, tolerance then is not a virtue. Another uh, idea, statement like, it's okay as long as it does not harm anyone else. Kind of a common perspective in our, in our world. This is sometimes used about sexual relationships. Whether it's within marriage or outside of marriage, living together, premarital sex, homosexual practices, it's okay as long as it doesn't harm anyone. And one of the questions is, who decides what harm is? What authority is there to determine? And usually it's just up to
to the person. And when you carry this through logically, it sometimes can have some disastrous uh, consequences. Um, For example, if you were to interview people involved in sex trafficking, they don't think they're harming anyone. They think they're doing good. They would argue that way. It's crazy. It sounds outlandish. It's just taking this through logically. It's okay as long as it doesn't harm anyone. Who decides the harm? And you're going to say, you do? Okay. I hope you're always good and wise. Another uh, statement would be, there's no right or wrong. It's only personal preferences. So the question is, is how do you decide? If there's no God, this would, be, this would make sense. Tolerance would, would make more sense if this were true. There, if there were no right and wrong. So what I'm saying is, and I know you can say, well, I'm just setting up a straw man, but my point is, if we leave God out, we are left to our own to come up with a moral compass. We're left to our own ways. And that can be dangerous because if we had 500 people in the room, we might have 500 ways of doing things and deciding things. Um, in Psalm 14, verse 1, the scripture says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, their deeds are vile, there is no one who does good. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. So this would be like an, an atheist. I'm not trying to put every atheist in one category, but scripture says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Um, If there's no God, I'm left to make the best of it. If there is no God, I can reason my way through life and determine what is best. And that would be true if there was no God. When man is left to his own reason and personal preferences, he sometimes comes to the opposite view of God. Proverbs 17.15 says this. Next passage. Acquitting the guilty and condemning the innocent. The Lord detests them both. Sometimes things can get turned upside down, especially when we come, come at it without a perspective from God and only choose to reason from what we know. We acquit those who are actually guilty and we actually condemn the innocent. It's a flip-flop of morality. Um, so, all we said is that how we come at this depends on our worldview. Do we begin with God, or do we begin without God? That's how this is approached. You know how you approach this. You might approach it with God. You might approach it you don't care about God. Secondly, a biblical perspective on marriage begins with God. A biblical perspective on marriage begins with God. God designed and created male and female in his image. We're going to go to... uh, Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 1 is a macro view of creation, a panoramic view of creation. It's all of creation in a six-day period. Genesis chapter 2 is a micro view. It comes at day 6 and specifically focuses on the creation of man. We're going to look at both concepts because they are really important. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. Then God said... 
Let us make man in our image and our likeness so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. Verse 27 is the key. So God, on the sixth day, created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So this is an amazing passage, and here are some observations. God has a very high view of humanity. Very high view of humanity. He created humanity in his image. And he did not do that with the rest of the animal kingdom. He separated humans, mankind, and created them in his image, which includes like having an intellect, the ability to reason, um, the ability to make decisions and to have a free will, and to have emotions. And these are all things that relate to who God is and his personality. Um, Also, um, being created in God's image includes, uh, I already said this, intellect, will, and emotions. And it's, here's what I think is significant here. It's both male and female that reflect the image of God. And it is male and female together that reflect the image of God better. Okay? It's not just male who reflects the image of God. It is male and female together that reflect the image of God. Uh, So together, male and female provide a more complete view of God's image. There are things that, uh, that... Uh, are in male that reflect the image of God and there are things that are different about the female that reflect the image of God and uh, these can work really well as God designed the family it's why I'm glad there aren't two of me in my family I'm glad that Sue and most of you who know Sue understand she is way different than me and brings a whole lot to the table that I am clueless about And uh, together, we reflect the image of God way better than if it were just me. Also, God designed and established the marriage relationship. So we're going to the marriage. Genesis 2-7 says, Then the Lord formed a man from the dust of the ground. So this is the micro view. We're coming to the sixth day. We're zeroing in on man. The Lord formed the man from the dust of the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. God created the first man, a male, and in Hebrew it's ish. So he created the ish right here. We jump to chapter 2, verse 18. A few verses later, the Lord God said, it's not good for, for the ish to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. So God declares for the first man that it's not going to be good for him to be alone. He needs someone. And God said, I'm going to make a helper 
suitable for him. The man needs help. He's going to be in deep trouble on his own, and he needs help. And God is going to make someone equal but different. Someone who compliments him and someone who's going to fill in the gaps and help him with being alone. Um, so we come to verses 19 and 20. And the Lord God formed out of the ground the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. And he brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. He gave Adam this really high responsibility to, to give names. God himself could have named everything, but he immediately pushes Adam into the forefront and gives him a job and responsibility. Verse 20, so the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. And this is crucial. But for Adam, no suitable, suitable helper was found. Adam was alone, and he knew it. And he looked at the rest of the animal kingdom and he's thinking, maybe I'll find someone. And he didn't. There was no suitable helper for him. There was no one like him, but different. There was no one for him to partner with. And we, let's go to the next slide. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and enclosed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. So God's plan to resolve Adam's aloneness is to create a woman. He made Adam out of the dirt, and he took, he took the woman from Adam's side. And she would be made of higher stuff than dirt. She would be made of humanity. And um, she would be a companion for Adam. And Adam is the Ish, and she is the Isha. And the um, Lord made this woman, and he brought her to the man. And so God presents the Isha to the man as a bride. This is where we get the first wedding. And he uh, walks her down the aisle and he gives her away to Adam. Verse, uh, next slide. And the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called Isha, for she was taken out of Ish. And so Adam recognizes God brings this beautiful creature before him, and Adam recognizes she is not like anything else. She is different. She's like me. And um, verse 24. And so right now, here is a foundational verse in all the Bible. It's really crucial to understand. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. This was written to set a standard for all time. It's written later. It's written by Moses, and it's a standard for all time from the beginning. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to a wife. This is why a 
an Isha leaves his father and mother and is united to a Isha. And they become one flesh. Leave parents, be united, and this is the covenant relationship. And we're going to look at more about this next week. But there is, a, there is an agreement made before God and to each other, a covenant relationship, and God is going to be the witness, and it will bind them together. A covenant, that's what it means to be united to the wife, and they become one flesh. This is certainly going to include a sexual relationship, but it's about having an exclusive relationship a relationship where no one else can come in and take that role. It's exclusive. Nobody comes in to interfere with that relationship. There are no other sexual partners. It's exclusive. And this, God has designed this as a family unit. And we're going to see to raise children in a safe environment where there is a mother and a father who are committed to each other. Where... Children can see the image of God reflected in both male and female. What am I saying? I'm saying this was God's original design. Please see this. So next we're going to come to the New Testament. Jesus confirmed God's design in establishment of marriage. Jesus confirmed God's design in establishment of marriage. Uh, let's go to Matthew 19. So some Pharisees came in to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife in every, any and every reason? So they, they wanted to test him. They're going to have this question about divorce. And Jesus says, haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning, the creator made them male and female. What is Jesus doing? He's going back to Genesis chapter one. God made them male and female. So Jesus is saying, this is the foundation of marriage. It hasn't changed since Genesis chapter 1 to Matthew chapter 19. It hasn't changed. Thousands of years, it hasn't changed. Okay? And then he says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother. This is Genesis chapter 2. So Jesus quotes the macro view and the micro view of marriage. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and will be united to his wife, and the two will become one, two become one flesh. So they are not, no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. So God intended this to be a permanent relationship. Jesus intended to be a permanent relationship to become one. It is one man and it is one woman. So Jesus, this is really important when you look at what is the design? What is God's design for marriage? It is really important that we go back to Genesis and how we see that it's affirmed by Jesus. Um, Matthew 19, verse 7, Why then did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Well, Moses didn't command that. Jesus answers, Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, but it was not this way from the beginning. You see, Jesus, again, is saying it's about God's original design in the beginning. Next slide. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. So Jesus is saying this is to be a permanent bonding relationship, and um, there is something that can tear the bond apart. 
and destroy the relationship and its sexual immorality. It includes adultery. It includes any kind of sexual immorality. And the Greek word is pornea. And then the Apostle Paul confirms God's design and establishment of marriage in Ephesians chapter 5. So we've gone from Genesis 1 and 2 up to Jesus. Now we're going to switch to the Apostle Paul after the establishment of the church. And this is for the church, okay? Which is going to apply directly to us. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. What is Paul doing? He's quoting the foundational passage of marriage because this is the foundation of marriage. This is what marriage is based on. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ in the church. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. I'm going to just touch on this today. Back in the beginning, God designed the marriage relationship. He had a plan all along. When we got to the New Testament, that the marriage relationship was to reflect Christ in the church. That the way husbands treat their wives reflects how Jesus is. The way wives respond to their husbands reflects how the church is supposed to respond to Christ with humility and respect and honor. One of the great failures of the church is to not live this out, is to have a low view of marriage and a selfish view of marriage and to fail in marriage and to be unloving to your mate and self-centered and self-focused. And the world does not get the value of knowing God. And the world does not see what knowing Christ is about. If we would walk with Christ, our world would have a much better view of what God intended. Okay, I want to go to our third biblical perspective on sexuality. It begins with God. Uh, why is this important? Because our, our culture says sexuality begins with me. It's my life, it's my body, uh, I'm not hurting anyone, and according to popular opinion, 50% of Americans believe that all kinds of sexuality is okay. So let's look at this. We're going to go back to Genesis. God blessed sexual relations in marriage between one man and one woman, Genesis 2, 24 and 25. That's why a man, we, we just looked at this, that's why a man leaves his father and mother and they become one flesh. Now that picture of one flesh includes sexuality. Look at verse 25. Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. God wants us to know that this is about sexuality right here. It's about more than sexuality. It definitely included sexuality. And it was a good situation and a healthy situation. And there was no shame. There was no guilt. There was no embarrassment about their bodies. And they were to become one flesh. And that's about a lifetime relationship. Now let's uh, go to Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. God blessed them and said, this is to the first couple. We go back to the macro view. Be fruitful and increase in number. That was, that was God's plan. He, 
He wanted his people to have one flesh and to be fruitful. To honor each other with their love. To be committed to a sexual relationship. You know, God is the one who designed a sexual relationship which included pleasure. He had the first sexual thoughts. He designed everything about the human body for pleasure as it relates to this relationship. And he said, be fruitful with it. Okay, next uh, slide, verse 31, I think. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. When did God say that? It was after he made the man and the woman and said the two become one flesh. It was after he said, be fruitful. And he looks at this, at the pinnacle of the relationship is the male and the female. And he said, this is very good. In fact, if you go back and read Genesis all the way through, everything he did was good, 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 good. Verse 31, very good. God designed sex to be very good. Um, Next, God set sexual boundaries around marriage to protect it. Marriage requires loyal love, long-term faithful love. Outsiders are not welcome to violate this intimacy. I'm going to quickly go through some passages here. Leviticus 18, verse 3. So you must not do... uh, We just finished 21 weeks on the book of Exodus and how God brought the Israelites out of Egypt. And there they worshipped many gods and there was a different culture there, different lifestyle. God said, this is the same group. This is Moses and the Israelites, the same group that just came out of Egypt. This is probably even the same year that we left them off. You must not do as they do in Egypt, where you used to live. And you must not do as they do in the land of Canaan, where I'm bringing you. The promised land where, they're, where God is taking them out of Egypt. Do not follow their practices. So now we're going to get a list of those practices. Uh, verses six, uh, 18, 6 and 7. This is a moral code in the book of Leviticus. And by the way, I don't think any of these are out of date. No one is to approach any close close relative to have sexual relationships. I am the Lord. Well, what is a close relative? Okay, good question. Verse 7, do not dishonor your father by having sexual relationships with your mother. Okay, she is your mother. Do not have relationships, uh, sexual relations with her. All right, Um, probably not a lot of arguments here. And then uh, we go to verses uh, 8 through 18. And just listen, here's the list. No sex with your father's wife, even if she's not your mother. No sex with your sister. No sex with your father's daughter or half-sister or blended family. No sex with your granddaughter or your father's cousin or your mother's sister or your daughter-in-law or your brother's sister and a woman with her daughter and your neighbor's wife. This is what they did in Egypt. This is what they're going to do in Canaan when you get there. I want to protect the one man, one woman relationship. So I'm putting boundaries around it. And then we get to the hot topic and the controversial verse of Leviticus 18, verse 22. Do not have sexual relationships with a man as one does with a woman. That is detestable. 
Now, I want to go into this more next week. So cut me some slack here. And I want to deal with some of the hard questions about this. A couple of things right here. This is about sexual relations of two participating people who are willingly participating. This is not about dominance. It's not about rape. Certainly would include those. But the idea here is about two willing participants. Not to have sexual relationships, sexual relations the way a man, husband and wife would have sexual relationships, sexual relations with the woman. Okay? So let me come back to this next week. Verse 23, right after this verse, do not have sexual relationships with an animal and defile yourself. A woman must not present herself to an animal to have sexual relations with it. This is a perversion. You probably wouldn't argue that one very long. This is out of bounds, God says. Um, and my point here is God has designed a sexual relationship and he put boundaries around it and his desire was to protect it. So uh, last point is what is the appropriate attitude to have toward people who disagree with me today? A biblical perspective of marriage and sexuality. It's a good question. So we all need to think about this before we speak. Some Christians are bigoted, hypocritical, unkind, unloving, and disparaging. I agree, absolutely. And I'm going to say, I don't think this pleases Jesus in any way. It's totally inappropriate for a Christ follower. So I want to go back to Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. And God says in Leviticus, Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself, I am the Lord. And so there was this command in the Old Testament. And you want to say, well, that's just for your people. That means just for the Jewish people. Well, Jesus is going to broaden it a lot. Because in the New Testament, he's going to say, this is the second and greatest commandment of all. The first is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. But the second one is to love your neighbor as yourself. If you are a Christ follower, you are commanded to love your neighbor as yourself. And that's everyone who is not you. Okay? And we are to love our neighbors. So we should have loving attitudes to people who disagree with us. Um, whether they have a different belief system, whether they have a different sexual orientation, we're called to love. Jesus is our model in Luke 15, verses 1 and 2. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. They didn't like that. They were the religious community, and Jesus is hanging out with the wrong crowd. He's hanging out with sinners of all people. Tax collectors. It was like the lowest social class. But yet, Jesus hung out with sinners. Jesus was a friend to sinners. And that's what he wants us. And guess what? If you're a friend of sinners, it means you can hang out with me. Because I'm a sinner. And I have a vast experience with sin that I'd rather not talk about. And guess what? You're a sinner. We all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So we're all in this same boat. 
The good news is Jesus has offered forgiveness. He died on the cross and he paid the penalty for our sins. And he's offered forgiveness for every person, no matter what their sin. All people have sinned. And uh, this has created a big problem for Christians because you know what Christians do? They, they uh, fall into this trap. And they get deceived in their own mind. And they somehow think, well, I'm a good sinner and other people are bad sinners. I'm a better sinner. No, you're not. You might be saved by grace and you didn't deserve it and you don't deserve it today and you won't deserve it tomorrow. But we have to be careful about saying, I'm a better sinner. And view yourselves as somehow being in some way superior because that is not true. You are not superior. If we've experienced God's forgiveness, it ought to cause us to be truly humble and appreciative and thankful. Last passage, Matthew 5, verses 43 through 45. Jesus said, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. So God says, love people who may strongly disagree with your perspective about truth or about right and wrong or about marriage or about sexuality. Love them and pray for them. And we may experience persecution over this subject in the years to come. You know, the Supreme Court changed the law in our country about marriage. The Supreme Court did not change what Jesus said about marriage did not change what Jesus said we should do, did not change our mission to help people connect with God. The Supreme Court did not vote Jesus off the throne. Can't do that. He's still doing the very same things he's been doing for hundreds of years. So, God's people should follow Jesus, even if it seems hard. All people, just as a reminder, are created in the image of God. All people have dignity and deserve to be treated with dignity. And I remember when people shared Christ with me as an atheist, one of the most impactful things they did was they treated me with dignity. Some Christians treated me with disdain because I was an atheist. And I met some Christians who were kind to me and they loved me. They dialogued with me. They listened to me. And sometimes I had some silly ideas and they just kept talking with me. All people have dignity and deserve to be treated with dignity. All people are sinners, including everybody in this room. Um, So, Someone in your past, if you are a follower of Christ, someone in your past took the time to love you and take the time to help the gospel be clear so that you could understand it and place your faith in Christ. That's our job, is to love people and to help them understand what God has done, who he is, and what he's done. Nobody's going to fix anyone, okay? Our job is to help people come into a relationship with God. 
All right, let's stand, let's pray. Father, I thank you uh, for your word. I thank you for your grace that you uh, offered me forgiveness through Jesus Christ. Father, may we um, consider what you've instructed us in your word and your design for marriage. May we be careful about our attitudes with people who disagree with us and have a different perspective. May we create dialogue and love and care and dignity for all people. May we grow as people as we navigate through um, these truths and the situations that we find, them, find ourselves in because it relates to our friends and our families and our coworkers and our classmates. And these are all people we care about. Help us to honor you. In Jesus' name, amen.